Thank you for listening to this recording from Chestnut Hill Baptist Church. Today, Pastor David Seip starts a two-part message on Jonah, preaching out of Jonah chapter 3 with a message called, The Ninevites Believed God. We hope you find this message valuable and enriching. Our scripture reading this morning is from the Old Testament in the prophetic books of Jonah, chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. Jonah chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. This is the word of God to us this morning. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now Nineveh was a very important city. A visit required three days. On the first day, Jonah started into the city. He proclaimed 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned. The Ninevites believed God. They declared a fast, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. May God illuminate our hearts with this truth from his word this morning. Thank you. Now, when we think of the story of Jonah, we, of course, think of the prophet being swallowed by a great fish. And I like the way that the NIV words it, God provided a great fish. You think about it, right? He instructs that Jonah would be thrown overboard, and then he provides a great fish. And after three days, Jonah is spewed out onto dry land. And now from this point in the story, God speaks to Jonah a second time, and he instructs Jonah to go to Nineveh. And you recall God previously instructed Jonah to go to Nineveh, and Jonah heads in the opposite direction. He boards a ship headed for Tarshish, And that's when God intervenes. Now, this time when God speaks, Jonah obeys. But here the timeline, I think, gets a little fuzzy for us as Christians. We're inclined to think that Jonah is spewed onto dry land and Nineveh is right there, or at least very close by. But it's not. Nineveh was where the current city of Mosul is located. We hear quite a bit about Mosul these days. And from the coastline of the the Mediterranean Sea, the distance is over 500 miles. He's traveling alone. He's plenty of time to think about his assignment because he's got many days to travel. Now picture the prophet with a serious countenance. God's asked him to do something, and he's prepared to do it, and he's clad in sheepskin with a a rope belt. He's making his way from Palestine towards the, the northeast, and he crosses the Jordan, and he climbs the heights beyond it, and then onward past the gates of old Damascus, onward through many weary days until to his backward gaze, the peaks of Lebanon had faded into the blue distance, and then across the Euphrates, and still onward, he travels. And now the roads are are getting broader. There are signs of increased wealth and luxury. The weary traveler passes many a chariot and many loaded wagons on their way into that, that great city until at last he comes within sight of Nineveh. And ahead are the the walls, 60 miles in circumference, a great city for that day, 100 feet in height, broad enough for three chariots to go side by side in through the gate. 
And the Bible says the distance across the great city was a three-day walk. Now he sees the glowing pinnacles of the, the temples of Bel and Nebo. Banners are waving with a, a hundred towers. The broad roads are lined on each side with winged lions leading to the gates. And as the prophet draws near, the, he stands still and he's overwhelmed perhaps with a, a feeling of reluctance. But it's not fear. His sense of duty is strong enough, I think, to overcome all of that sense of worldly fear. But he goes on to preach repentance and to pardon the Ninevites. You see, it's strange because he's loath to enter this approaching gate because he's been accustomed to, to think of Israel as God's chosen people. And of these Ninevites, in his mind, they're Gentile dogs. And moreover, they've been from time immortal, the foes of Israel. He hated them with a, a righteous indignation. And he had gladly heard the prophet Joel say that they should soon be, quote, trodden in the winepress of the wrath of God. But now he must enter and he must preach mercy to them because God has told him to do so. Go to that great city of Nineveh, God said, and proclaim to it the message I give you. And he enters that great gate, and immediately upon entering, he lifts his voice, 40 more days, and Nineveh will be overturned. And all day long, up and down streets in the shadows of those mighty temples before the, the palace door, 40 more days, and Nineveh will be overturned. Now the people look out of their doorways and they, they listen to that strange cry. And nobles stop their, their chariots and they, they gaze with wonder, 40 more days, and Nineveh will be overturned. So let's observe a few things about that, that strange sermon of Jonah, 40 more days, and Nineveh will be overturned. Well, first let's observe its brevity. How brief that sermon was. Only eight words, five words in the Hebrew. There's no beginning <clears throat> or ending to the speech. There's no exhortation to, to act. But even so, it's a strong warning. Much was said in those few words. When Julius Caesar reported to the Roman Senate his victory at the Battle of Zella. He wrote in a letter just three words. He said, I came, I saw, and what? I conquered. Just those words. And before the fall of Richmond, a telegram was received from General Sherman concluding if the, he said, quote, if the time, if the thing is pressed, I believe Lee will surrender. To which the president replied, let it be pressed. Brevity. Brevity. My father-in-law, who worked for Procter & Gamble all his uh, career, used to say that P&G had a policy that memos should be no longer than one page. You see, when God is about to release his wrath, he doesn't need to say much, does he? And secondly, 
Look at its frankness, the frankness of this short sermon. The Lord had said to Jonah, go to Nineveh and proclaim the message I give to you. You see, he had no alternative. The doom had been passed upon that great city, and it was his business to admonish the people. The minister of the gospel in these days is under equally explicit orders. He may be abdicating his responsibility, but he's enjoined to declare the exceeding sinfulness of sin, to show that death follows, to declare the glad tidings that God has been pleased to make atonement for our sins and to to state with perfect clearness that the only hope and deliverance is in accepting the atonement of Jesus Christ. As it's written, there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. This is the message and the, the minister who refuses to deliver it in unmistakable terms is false to his divine commission. Thus saith the Lord, if I say unto the wicked, thou shalt surely die, and thou giveth him not warning, he shall die in his sins, but his blood shall I require at your hand. It's so easy to preach smooth things, especially in these days when we're so politically sensitive. Things that are politically charged are socially accepted, while the truth is considered so old-fashioned these days. And as the old-time preachers used to say, the people have itching ears. But nevertheless, the preacher must be an honest man. And to be an honest man, he must declare the whole counsel of God. There's a third thing that I want you to notice this morning. <clears throat> notice its directness. Notice the directness. Jonah mentioned no names, yet every arrow in his quiver reached its mark. It's not necessary that the proclamation of the gospel should be offensively personal, although there are some who feel that it's perfectly all right to pro project the gospel in an offensive way toward others because they, they feel that that person isn't measuring up to some standard, usually that person's standard and not God's. And Jonah doesn't direct his proclamation to any one individual, yet his message hits its mark. And Paul in the judgment hall at Caesarea reasoned of righteousness and temperance and judgment to come. Felix sat there with his paramour Drusilla beside him. And hearing the apostle set forth those tremendous truths in his presence, he trembled because he knew that in those words, judgment was pronounced against him. The people of Nineveh, hearing that their city was to be destroyed, must all with one accord have begun to, to ask within themselves, what then will become of me? That's the divine glory, you see, of the gospel. Its truths are of the, the most solemn importance. All sorts of conditions of, of men and women, it was a fact that moved Samuel Taylor Coleridge, if you remember who he was. He was a, a friend of William Wadsworth. 
It was a, the, both were founders of the Romantic movement in, in England in the 19th century. He said, listen to this, I believe that the Bible is inspired because it finds me. It finds me. C.S. Lewis said similar words when at his conversion he proclaimed that the Holy Spirit pursued him. And then fourth, Jonah's little sermon was dogmatic. It was dogmatic. Preachers are blamed these days for being dogmatic, but what else can a preacher do? Our opinions, no doubt, in the pulpit are not of vital consequence. You test the words that I speak and receive or reject them upon their merit. But when a preacher declares God's divine message, it must ever be yea and amen, as Dr. Commons used to say in his prayers. The introduction of our own phraseology into, into scripture, I think, is harmful because it robs scripture of its great truth, and you see that happening so often these days. Where does it say in God's word, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him need not necessarily perish, but may possibly have eternal life? Where does it say that? And where does it say, come unto me, all ye that labor and heavy laden, and I perhaps will give you rest. Or ask, and there's a possibility you shall receive. Seek, and ye may find. Knock, and maybe, perhaps, it shall be opened unto you. Where does it say that in God's word? But blessed be to God. His word is verily, verily. There are no perhapses, you see. It's been truly said that a perhaps in the proclamation of heavenly mercy would be as dangerous as a charge of dynamite under the rock of ages. But let's now turn to the results of Jonah's preaching. What were the results? A sure promise attaches to the faithful preaching of the word as it's written, my word shall not return unto me void, but shall accomplish that which I please and prosper in the thing whereto I send it. I love that verse. It's one of my favorites in God's word. So let's first observe that the Ninevites believe God. They believe what God had to say. There was that thing in the prophet's voice, his visage as it said, his expression, his impressive manner, which convicted them that his admonition was from above. And too often we hear a divine message as if the messenger were speaking for effect. And we observe that oftentimes in some of the televangelists. I heard the other day of uh, someone who said, who has written, who has read, I haven't read any of Joel Osteen's books and don't intend to, but he said two of his books that he's read, the word Jesus is not mentioned in either of those books. And he proclaims to be a preacher of the gospel. The people said of the preaching of Ezekiel, 
Does he not speak in parables? But the message of Christ himself was received by multitudes of those who heard him. And the awful pictures which he drew of the doom which shall ultimately overtake those who feel no shame as true today as ever. There is a death whose pang outlasts this fleeting breath. Oh, what eternal horrors hang around the second death. It was a fire that shall never be quenched. It was as the gnawing of the worm that never dies. It's an outer darkness without one gleam of hope forever. And when Jesus uttered these terrific truths, he was simply working on the people's fears? I don't think so. Was he trying to scare them? I don't think so. The words were laden with tremendous sincerity. And when Jonah declared the doom that had been passed upon Nineveh, it was intended that the people should believe him because he spoke as an ambassador of God. And in like manner, we, knowing the terror of the Lord, persuade men, and it's the part of wisdom to believe that the message is true, except ye repent, God's word says, ye shall all likewise perish. But secondly, they proclaimed a fast. That is to say, they repented and they confessed their sin. The king put on sackcloth and the, the whole city was draped in mourning. The people cast dust and ashes upon their heads. And the warning of the prophet had touched their hearts as well. And no man was inclined to disguise his sorrow from his neighbors. But you see, we also are, are sinners and under the same condemnation. Open confession is good for the soul. If we confess our sins, Scripture says, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all of our unrighteousness. But thirdly, they turned every one from his evil way. The evil way of Nineveh was idolatry. They had forgotten the true God and they bowed before man-made images. And now they turned from their idols to Jehovah. And they turned also from their violence. These people were prone to violence, to predatory war upon their, their neighbors. And now they hung up their swords and made war no more. And let it ever be remembered that repentance is not mere sorrow for sin. Repentance is not mere sorrow for sin, but also a turning from sin. You see, to be saved not only is to receive God's gift of salvation by faith, but also to repent. To repent, it's said that the Italian bandits came down from their mountain retreats at certain periods and visited the shrines in the, the village streets below. And they lay heaps of money and necklaces of pearls taken by violence from defenseless travelers. 
and they laid these gifts before the image of the Virgin Mary. And having thus paid tribute to their innate sense of retribution, they climbed the mountains again and resumed their evil ways. I know a large church whose elder stole hundreds of thousands of dollars from his employer. And he confessed this to the elder board, turned himself in to the authorities and was convicted and served a prison sentence. And as far as I know, his contributions to the church were never returned to the employer as a gesture of decency and integrity. True repentance means to give up sin. If we believe in God's oft-repeated warnings and, and admonitions, let's bring forth fruits sufficient for repentance. Let's give up lying, dishonesty, covetousness, evil speaking, selfishness, and whatever else is offensive to God. But fourth, they cast themselves on God's divine mercy. It says in verse 9, who knows, God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. See, in Jonah's message, there was not a suggestion of mercy. There was no suggestion in that. But they reasoned that it was so, and they thought that God would not have sent this man to admonish them and to proclaim a 40-day period if he had not meant to avoid evil and to avert it from their, their city. There is then a possibility that if we turn from our iniquities, he will pardon and save us. So there was hope in their sorrow. And hope marks the difference, you see, pay attention to this, marks the difference between repentance and remorse. Repentance and remorse. At the door of the hall, Judas the traitor hurled his 30 pieces of silver upon the marble floor with a cry, I have betrayed innocent blood. And then he rushed out and he hung himself above the valley of Hinnon. That was remorse. That was remorse from the judgment hall where Peter denied his Lord. He went forth to weep bitterly and cherishing the memory of his Lord's reproachful look. He regained his courage and returned to his first love. And that was repentance. There's forgiveness with God. His warnings are to the end that we may repent Look up, and stricken sinner, to our God who sits above his throne of mercy. Look up is the cry of the alpine climber. To look down is to be overwhelmed with despair. Look up, away from self, away from discouraging environment of temptation, away from the gloomy remembrance of past transgressions up to where Christ sits at the right hand of God to make intercession for us. And finally, what was the outcome of all of this? 
the Ninevites were spared. God repented of the evil that he purposed to do unto them. If you think about it, that's a a strange expression, isn't it, that God repents? How can God repent? Is he not the same yesterday, today, and forever? Yes, but not with the stolid unchangeableness of a, a stone idol. That is to say, no eyes to see, no heart to pity, no arms to reach forth towards the, the sorrowing. God's turning is a, a part of his eternal purpose. He always intended to save the Ninevites when they should forsake their sins. It looks like repentance on his part, but the author speaks after the the manner of a man and how we would view the circumstance if it were up to us. And I look from the window of a boat on the, the ocean and it seems to me as if the shore was moving. It is I, however, who am moving, not the shore, while the shore stands still. And so God seems to repent when the sinner repents and turns to righteousness. You see, God is ever ready to bestow his pardoning grace on those who call upon him. Depth of mercy. Can there be mercy still reserved for me? Can my God his wrath forbear? Me, the chief of sinners, spare. There for me the Savior stands, shows his wounds and spreads his hands. God is love. I know. I feel. Jesus lives and loves me still. May God bless his own word to us this morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we've come before your throne and opened your word, we thank you that we have the example of Jonah, the reluctant prophet of the Old Testament, who turned from you not out of fear, but out of repugnance for saving a a city whose hatred was toward your people whom you loved and, and put forth with a special covenant relationship and so he chose to run. But you turned him back and gave him many days of travel to Nineveh to think about the message that you had given to him, declare this message to this city. And he was faithful to declare it. And the people were faithful to hear it. And you repented and you turned And as the city turned from its evil ways, you moved them toward repentance. And so, Father God, we we ask you, teach us the difference in our own life between remorse and repentance. To be sorry is one thing for us as human beings, but to turn from our evil ways, to seek you and your righteousness And to repent of that sin is what you want from us, to receive by faith and to repent. And so, Heavenly Father, 
Help us, Lord, as we often are wayward in our, our own lives, to turn to you, to walk toward your goodness and your love, to be used in whatever measure you desire to use us, Lord, to proclaim with our lives, with our voices, our actions, the truth of your word and your love and your healing power. Help us, Lord, to look up and to see the Son of God on the throne interceding for us and helping us, Lord, to, to live in such a way that your Holy Spirit is within us is pleased. And we give you all the thanks and all the glory in Jesus' precious name. Amen. For more information about Chestnut Hill Baptist Church, or to subscribe to these audio messages via our podcast, visit our website at chestnuthillbaptist.org. You can also write to us at Chestnut Hill Baptist Church, 2 Bethlehem Pike, Philadelphia, PA, 19118.